0: Thank you, Susan. Um, well, I'm going to call up my daughter, who has the gift of memory. Uh, and she's going to recite some scripture for us before we get started. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall know what. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the waters. He restores my soul. He guides me paths to righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You will put a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. i no, don't host the Lord forever. <laughs> Okay, Um, so it's such a familiar psalm, Psalm 23, um, and so I thought that maybe things would register more if if she recited it for us. Um, Someone asked me from our church a few months ago uh, if there's anything that my daughter Eloise is not enthusiastic about. Um, And if you know her at all, it's a pretty appropriate question, and I had to think about it because I was quite stumped, Um, and the answer I came up with is sleep. Um, She is not enthusiastic about sleep. Even though it's a value that uh, her family really shares, um, we're just praying that the Lord will uh, bring her along in that way. Um, But speaking of sleep, I think there's uh, two kinds of sleepers uh, in the world. There's those who fall asleep the moment their head hits the pillow and sleep just comes right away. They are the blessed ones. Um, And then there's those who just sort of toss and turn sometimes for hours, until sleep finally comes and um, it's really nice that my husband's so happy for me and how quickly I fall asleep. Um, There's really no resentment there at all. Um, But there is one caveat and that is um, because one of my roommates who shall remain nameless often wakes me up in the middle of the night, um, you know it's always silly questions like mama can we have tacos for dinner tomorrow and I I just, I don't want to discuss tomorrow's menu at three in the morning you know. Um, So when that happens I have a really hard time falling asleep. And uh, usually, I'm counting sheep when that happens. Um, I'm either counting the sheep of my former failures, and they're just kind of running through my mind, and all the things I wish I didn't say, and all the times I put my foot in my mouth. And um, yeah, the middle of the night's a really good time to just reflect on all your failures. Um, I also count the sheep of future finances, so just projecting what my children's weddings might uh, cost um, what the cost of tuition will be if and when they go to university um, Again, yeah, just going over your budget at 2 in the morning. Um, yeah, really fills me with peace. Not at all um, So a few months ago I actually decided to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ through the 23rd Psalm And I had memorized it a long time ago, so that part wasn't um, wasn't difficult. Uh, so I would just rather than kind of follow those sheep to wherever they were leading me, um, I would just sort of start reciting the psalm and bring it back to that. And it helped me fall asleep really quickly. So if that's just a little pro tip for anybody wondering. Um, and so we're going to go through the psalm because the Lord has revealed uh, some, um, just some really, oh, these are not ways to give. We don't want that. Uh, just a few things that um, have been. Uh, really impactful for me as I've done that pretty much every night. Um, and so the main thing that we're going to cover is God's witness, And it's not uh, a typo there. Um, it's really, and it's not even a word. I have it uh, in um, quotes because it it's really important, I think, that we recognize that God being with us is the most important thing. So a few things that will hit is God um, as the shepherd and God as banquet host. We're going to see that in the psalm. Um, The question that's threaded throughout is, why can I trust that He is good? And I'm really hoping that by the end of our time that we'll have a long list of reasons for why God is good. So let's just dive right in. First is, the Lord is my shepherd. And we're going to start with the word, the. Um, Because it's not um, a Lord, it's not some Lord, it's not uh, one of many Lords, but the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's sovereign over all creation, almighty God, the Lord of heaven and earth. Unlike um, in the ancient world where uh, the the gods, it was a pantheon of gods and they were capricious and they were insatiable and it was just hard to figure out which god do I sacrifice for what? And we need rain for the crops and we need victory in battle and I've got a growth on my back. Like who do I sacrifice what to? Um, And things would get more desperate. So it wasn't enough that we were sacrificing animals. Um, We started to sacrifice people and children. Um, A little bit later on, there was a desire to be morally upright in order to get God to do what we wanted. And we see that especially in the New Testament, in the Gospels with the Pharisees, that the understanding that God will not send the Messiah unless we are morally perfect. And so it wasn't enough that we are um, following God's law. They started to put rules around God's law to ensure that no part of God's law was being broken. So you were keeping the sabbath which is great but um okay also don't turn on a light switch on the sabbath and um you want to put a taco in the microwave don't even do that like we just don't want to risk anything that might happen that we might break god's law because he's not going to do what we want and we kind of laugh at these things but we do the same thing we kind of bargain with god right like i'll give up this and this if you do what i want and that's the sacrifice or if i'm really really perfect god god has to do what i want So that's not who we're talking about, but the Lord. We're going to explore who the Lord is. And so if you're already in Psalm 23, that's great. Um, But we are going to actually go to Genesis. So Psalm's right in the middle. We're going to go all the way to the beginning you can go there with me. If you have your Bible, that is great. You should bring it to church. If not, there's a Bible in front of you. Um, And I know most of you have it on an app as well. But um, we're not going to read through all of this. But if someone could just call out to me and tell me what you have as the heading for Genesis 2, but starting at verse 4. So Genesis 2, starting at verse 4. This will probably be in your app as well. Adam and Eve. Okay, some might have uh, the creation of man and woman. So Adam and Eve were the first man and woman. So it's the introduction of people. So Genesis 1 is introducing um, sort of the overarching uh, bird's eye view once, like the bird was actually created, um, of the creation story. So the the narrative, the sequence of of events of um, God creating the world. So God created and it was good, and God created and it was good, and you can follow that along. Uh, But it's not until Genesis 2 when we get more specifics into uh, the details of creation and we get actually on the ground level, so literally the dust that Adam was formed in, that we get details of God creating Adam and Eve. And it's not until verse 4 that we meet the Lord God. It's the first time we see Lord God in the text. All of Genesis 1 and the beginning of Genesis 2 has God as God. God the creator and his creation, and that was the relationship. So whether it's your beloved pet, or the ocean, or the grass, or the wind, the relationship is creator and created. So there's no intimacy there. Does that make sense? And it's not until Genesis 2, starting at verse 4, that we meet the Lord God. And it's when the reader is now introduced to God's personal name, Yahweh. Yahweh, closer than your next breath. Why why is that significant? You'll notice uh, if you turn the page, okay, it's two pages for me, Um, chapter three has the fall, and that's when sin enters the world. And the serpent comes in, and he's talking to Eve, and you'll notice that he does not address God as the Lord. There's no intimacy there. And unfortunately, Eve doesn't either, because she doesn't really know him. She doesn't see him as good or um, trust him to do good for her. This is a little um, foreshadowing that we're going to see later in the Gospels. There's only one time that Jesus addresses the Lord as God, and we'll talk about that. But for now, you'll recognize that when God creates his people, his image bearers, whether you're a believer in Jesus or not, you are a, a bearer of God's image, the Lord. That's when he actually introduces himself with that personal name of Yahweh. Closer than your next breath, because he wants to be known by his people. Okay, a few uh, chapters later, and we're not going to be in Genesis forever, I promise. Genesis 16, we meet a woman named Hagar. And Hagar is a servant of Abraham and Sarah. Abraham received the promise that his children would become a great multitude of nations. Um, But Abraham and Sarah are like old as dirt. And so it just feels like maybe the promise has an expiration date. And so Sarah says, you know what, let's just get this ball rolling, just have this child through my maidservant and, you know, we'll just, we'll just get this going. So Hagar does become pregnant with Abraham's child and um, Sarah flips a switch and she starts to severely mistreat Hagar. And Hagar decides to take her chances and go into the wilderness, so into the desert as a pregnant woman. So you got to imagine how bad her experience was so far. Uh, with Abraham and Sarah if, if that's kind of like what she's willing to do um, but she is met there by God and she is the first person in the scriptures who gives God a name and she calls him Elroy. Roy in, uh chapter 16 verse 13 she calls him you are the God of seeing for truly here I have seen him who looks after me intimacy but wait a minute I thought no one could see the face of God and live Isn't that what God told Moses? And and they were like this. Like, I don't know if you could see my fingers, but this means they were super tight. So why is God making this exception? For some reason, God is making an exception to, and I want us to get this, because this is pretty interesting, an enslaved Gentile woman. This is completely out of the paradigm of how we understand that God operates. Because God, you know, we would think, speaks to royalty, speaks to a high priest, right? But she's an enslaved person. Um, and God chose the people of God to reveal himself to, but she was a Gentile. And lastly, a woman? I mean, God, what are you doing? It doesn't make sense to us, but that is how God operates. We have to expect that he will do the unexpected. So, intimacy. We are two words in and making great time. I can trust that God is good because he reveals himself to his image bearers. Even if you do not fit... What you perceive to be the paradigm that God would use um, to reveal himself. Okay, let's keep going. I shall not want. Uh, Some translations will say, I have all that I need. And so this is both a declaration asserting uh, that I have all that I need, but it's also a decision to actually trust God with all that I need, even if I don't see it yet. So unlike Abraham and Sarah, who took for themselves rather than just trust God and trust his timing, this is saying that, I shall not want because the Lord's my shepherd and I'm going to trust him with all that I need. He makes me lie down in green pastures. I have that in bold because I I want us to know it doesn't say that he invites me to lie down in green pastures. He encourages me or he suggests to me or he would really like me to, but he makes me lie down in green pastures. So ask yourself the question, what has been stripped away from me that has forced me to lie down, that has forced me to rest? Maybe you're facing a health crisis or health issues that is affecting just the pace of life that you want or um, the things that you, you know, were previously committed to. Maybe somebody broke up with you, and so all your plans for your future with that person are just unraveling. Maybe you lost your dream job, and so everything that you have sort of built momentum to to go towards um, at this moment is just at a standstill, and so... Asking the question, and I'm not going to answer that for you, what has kind of just been stripped away that has forced me to rest? And what does that look like, and what does God want to teach me in that? He leads me beside still waters. Some translations say quiet waters. So some of us really love drama, and we are drawn to, like, turbulent waters. Um, sheep can't really tell the difference, they just want water. And so they will go to turbulent turbulent waters, and if they fall in, the wool will just soak up that water and drown them. And so they really do need to trust the shepherd to keep them close and to lead them to safe waters. And so we really will drown in waters that are not um, safe for us. And we're deceived into thinking that the wrong things will actually fill us with peace and refresh us um, and give us the rest that we want when they don't. I love how St. Augustine puts it, that our souls are restless until they rest in you. And it, it just makes me ache for a world that doesn't even realize that they're restless, that they're lost, um, that they will only find that refreshment in God. And we all, we all do that in our own ways, even if we are followers of Jesus. He restores my soul. Uh, sometimes we suffer as a result of the sins of others, just as... Um, victims in a fallen world, but sometimes we are responsible for the suffering that we go through. And so if that's, if that's you, if you have made really poor choices and you're just, you're sitting here and you're thinking like, okay, that all sounds wonderful, you know, quiet waters, still waters, rest, that's great for people who, you know, just have been going through a hard time at no, no, no fault of their own, but... Like, I'm really responsible for the pain that I'm going through. I am in a lifestyle of sin that nobody knows about. Um, I'm engaged in things that I, I just can't, like, get out of. Um, and I'm just too ashamed to even reach out for help. And so this doesn't really, you know, like, this is on me. It doesn't really apply to me. And I just want to say, like, yes, it does. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Because everybody in this room... Um, Like, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all sinners in need of grace. Like, that's our starting point. Um, And so restoration here does refer to refreshment, and we obviously all could benefit from that, but it also has to do with bringing to repentance, bringing back to original purity. And all of us are on on that journey in in some way. I think of this story um, in Luke 15 with the prodigal son. And the prodigal son is, you know, that guy who just wanted his share of the money before his father passed away, which, um, you know, is rude today, but super scandalous back then. And so his father gives him the money and he goes off and he squanders it and he, you know, just blows through it real quick and realizes, you know, I'd be better off as as a servant in my dad's house than what I'm dealing with here. So I'm going to go back and ask him that. And so he turns around. That's all he does. He turns around and he's practicing his apology speech on his way back. And I, and I love, you can read this in Luke 15. I love the language that's used here because it says that while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and ran to him. Um, and he cut him off before he can even start apologizing. You know, like he had, he had this whole speech. You can read about it. You could read about how he's apologizing uh, in his head practicing what he's going to say and he doesn't even get to get it all out when he when the father sees him the father what does he do he wraps his robe around him puts on this signet ring and restores his soul to the family to good standing and that is what god does for us he doesn't wait for us to grovel at his feet and give a, you know all our big apology speeches he just wants us to turn around so maybe this is your day to just turn around just turn around uh, he guides me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Sometimes it's important to just note that I, I just need to be where the shepherd is and I'm on the right path. I just need to be with the shepherd um, and I'm on the right path. I love the terms um, for guides and leads. In the psalm, it's the Hebrew word nahal. And nahal actually refers to guidance but in a wilderness. Well-being but in a time of stress. So sometimes we feel like you know what, I'm kind of in a wilderness season, I must be on the wrong path. Or I'm in a really stressful situation, something, I must, something must be off here. But really, um, the point is that God is still with us, even in those wilderness moments. It's not like he's just the God that's here for a good time, and as soon as things turn or things get hard or things get complicated or, you know, whatever, that he's not around. He's actually with us, guiding us, leading us the whole time, whether it's good or bad, um, easy or hard, wilderness um, or times of refreshment. For his namesake, this kind of goes without saying, but all of this is for his glory and his renown. All of it um, is to give him the glory. Everything that we experience that's good is for his glory. And so I can trust that he's good because I experience his good gifts to me. Okay, things are about to get dark. hope you're ready. Even though I walk through the valley. So even though I follow the shepherd, I still go through hardship. The psalmist can be experiencing the refreshing, restorative benefits of following the shepherd and still walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But notice that it says walk through the valley. So it's not our final destination. We are going to see later what it is to actually dwell in the house of the Lord forever, like spoiler alert. Um, but right now, we're just passing through. And I, and I just feel for people who have passed through a hardship, but mentally, spiritually, emotionally, there's a hardness that's still in that, in that place. Um, and there's a wedge between them and God. And so their bitterness grows and resentment grows. Um, and they have not allowed their spirit to really pass through the valley of the shadow of death. So if that's you, just take note of that. We're passing through the hardship. And notice the psalmist is talking about, pass- about walking through the valley, but it's, it's present tense. So he's actually experiencing um, the, you know, the rest and the the still waters and the quiet waters while he's walking through the valley of the shadow of death. It doesn't say, I walked. It's not past tense, it didn't happen another time. I walked, it's currently happening right now. So he can experience the peace even in that moment. The language, even though, always reminds me of um, the story in Daniel 3 um, with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Maybe you remember them as Rakshak and Benny if you watched Veggie Tales in the 90s. Yeah, the bunny song. This was, like, peak Christian entertainment. Um, and so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I mean, you're going to have to just, like, check, look it up on YouTube. I don't want to distract you now. Um, they are in Babylon. They are Hebrew men that are told that, you know, they have to bow down to this statue, to this idol. Um, and if not, they're going to be thrown into a fiery furnace. And so this, I mean, how's that for, like, public policy, right? Um but they tell the king, and I just I love what they say to the king. They say, um, "Our God has the capacity to save us. Our God is sovereign and powerful, and He is able." So they're not questioning whether He can. Our God can save us from the flames. But even if He doesn't, we're not going to bow down. Even though I walk through the valley, even if He doesn't spare me from the flames, even if He lets me go through this situation. Um, he's still good and I can still trust him and, um, and he's still worthy of praise. So a few years ago I was pregnant with my third child and um, I started spotting and I went to the doctor for a routine um, appointment and they said you know the baby's heartbeat is quite weak um, so we really just need you to rest and come back in a month and we'll see how you're doing. We, there's nothing we can do about that right now. and. The Lord brought me to Daniel 3 and I read that exchange that that these men um, had with with the king. And I just, um, the Lord just kind of worked on my heart about it and said, do you still trust me? Am I still good um, if the baby doesn't make it? And I had a month to kind of wrestle with that before the appointment. Um, And I did come to that place because he was so tender with me. um, And he was so present with me throughout that time. And I went to that appointment and they said, unfortunately, there is no heartbeat. And I ended up having to go on medication to, to pass the remains. And it was, um, it was a hard time. I'm not going to downplay that. Um, a few months later, I got this tattoo. I was an adult, okay, if anyone's contemplating. And it says, yet he is still good. And it was from Daniel 3. So even though I walk through the valley, even if I have to go through this fire and this fiery furnace, he's still good. And I have it on my uh, left forearm, because I'm left-handed. So I want to be able to see it as a reminder, because I'm going to keep going through hard things. That's just life. When I'm writing, when I'm washing dishes, when I'm reading, when I'm cooking, um, I think that that's pretty much all I do, to be honest. Um, <laughs> but in all those times, I have that reminder all the time. And yet, he's still good. I'm going through this valley, but he's still good, OK? So I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, um, okay, I'm excited about this. <laughs> so Jesus walked through death so that we would only experience the shadow of it. Okay? He took on the full reality of death in our place so that we would only experience the shadow of death. 2 Corinthians 5.21 20, says, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God, so that we might be made right with God. I don't want this to come off as um, irreverent because I I know how horrific it it must have been. But sometimes I've wondered why Jesus agonized so much over the cross. Because we have records of um, martyrs going to their death. And some of them have experienced more horrific deaths than the crucifixion, if you can imagine that, and torture and whatever. Um, And they're going singing, um, praying, like they just have this quiet confidence about them. And yet we have Jesus, records in the Gospels of him sweating blood in the garden, begging God to take the cup from him. Like, I just have wondered, like, why did he not have that same um, conviction and and strength? And this is where I want to note um, the difference between the shadow and the actual death. Because God distanced himself from Jesus in that moment so that we would never have to know what it is to be without him. That the worst thing we can experience in this life, and I I know I can see some of your faces, like you have gone through it. I don't want to downplay that, but God literally stepped back and distanced himself from Jesus so that if we are following him, we never have to do any of it um, without him. And so that one time that Jesus um, calls God, God, is when he's on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every other um, time that Jesus talks to God in the gospels, he calls him father. Whether he's talking to him or more formally praying to him, it's father, 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 father. But on the cross, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we would never have to. It's the difference between being hit by a train and being hit by the shadow of a train. Or being stung by a bee and being stung by the shadow of a bee. Does that make sense? I hope so, okay. So, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. See, the the presence of the shepherd did not eliminate the presence of evil, but the fear of evil. Okay, we're not promised. In this world, we will have trouble, right? so the presence of the shepherd did not eliminate the presence of evil but the fear of evil why because the lord's my shepherd and i'm with him and this is the first time the psalmist says anything in the future tense i will fear no evil so imagine having the kind of confidence that says you know okay i you know got through that walked through that valley in the past you know dodged that bullet everything was good didn't wasn't too scared no it's so confident because i'm with the shepherd. And I'm on the right path with him that even in the future, I'm confident I will fear no evil. I might face evil, but I will not fear it. And why is that? For you are with me. This is when the psalmist, we're going to like pause our regular programming and do a little English lesson on the narrative voice, okay? So this is when the psalmist switches from the third-person narrative to the, to the second-person narrative. So the first-person narrative is, um, I love tacos. I think that's been clear so far. Uh, anybody else? Yes. Okay, we love tacos. First-person narrative, I love tacos, we love tacos. First-person narrative. Second-person narrative. Who, who was it that liked tacos? Me. Okay, you? Anybody else? You love tacos, y'all love tacos. That's one thing the South is definitely getting right. Um, the scriptures have a y'all, it just, It just—it is what it is. So you, you, y'all love tacos, second person narrative. Third person narrative says he and she, they love tacos. Third person narrative. So why is this important? The audience is gone. He was talking to us about his experience with God but now he's just talking to God. He's telling us about his experience and all the things God did for him and you know, makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. But now he's just with him. Now he's just with him. Talking to him. No one else is in the room. No one else is present. It's too dark. He's in the valley of the shadow of death. He can't see anyone else. He's just with the shepherd. And sometimes it takes real pain to know God, not just experience his good gifts, what we would maybe call common grace of the previous verses, right? The common grace just says that um, the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous, that God allows the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. We can all, because we are image bearers, whether you believe in Jesus or not, you are bearing God's image, we can... Um, enjoy the smell of a flower, the sight of a sunset, and even the taste of a taco. So these are all gifts that God gives to people, the Lord. But it's not until we experience real pain that we just actually get to know God. Um, Tim Keller said, and I, I have to say this about Tim Keller. So I made the mistake of saying that Tim Keller was my best friend at home, and my children were really offended by that. One of them said, "Uh, Mama, I thought Daddy was your best friend. And I said, you're right. You're right, you're right, you're right. That is true. But some guy named Tim said this, it's not until God is all you have that you realize He's all you need. It's not until God is all you have that you realize He's all you need. So this is the repeated message of the scriptures, right from Genesis 2, right at the beginning, right when people enter the scene, The rest of creation just knows him as God the creator and the created. And unfortunately, so many people never get past that. But from the beginning, God wants to be known by his people. Intimacy, Yahweh, closer than your next breath. 400 years of silence, right, in between the Old and the New Testament. What is the first? Matthew chapter 1 The first thing that enters the scene, Joseph is told in a dream, you're going to call his name Emmanuel. Why? It means God with us. In the last chapter of Matthew, Matthew 28, Jesus echoes his earthly father's words and says, surely I'm with you always even till the end of the age. So I can trust that he's good because he's with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You know, I just feel like this took like a weird right turn. Because a rod and a staff are not comforting. I'm just going to be honest. Um, you want to talk, you know, comforting things, a, a cozy blanket, um, maybe a cup of tea, those are comforting. Um, a warm fire, fuzzy slippers, like these are comforting things. But when you actually desire the things of God and you have tried all the other things to get the peace that you need and the satisfaction that you need and the confidence that you need, um, there's something about knowing where where is the shepherd leading me and I want to be in those boundaries. I want, I want your rod and your staff to show me where I should be. And the discipline that comes with that um, means I'm willing to give up certain things because um, they don't fill me with peace and I've come to realize that. Uh, a few weeks ago we had quite a bit of snow and um, I find it really disconcerting when you're driving and you can't see the lines on the road Um, And so it's comforting to know where the boundaries are for my vehicle. I can drive here, and those are my boundaries, and you can drive here, and those are your boundaries. And those are the good boundaries that we need to know that we are safe. And so I can trust that he is good because he disciplines those he loves, but it's for the purpose of helping me become who I was always created to be. We're going to switch gears here and meet the Lord as gracious host. You prepare a table before me. So this, again, is present tense. The Lord is preparing a table. And so the Lord continues to provide even in hardship. So I can enjoy a meal as if everything is at perfect peace because it can be in my heart. Not a rushed snack before going into battle, but the Lord actually wants intimacy to actually prepare a nice, long, drawn-out meal. You prepare a table before me, but it's in the presence of my enemies. So we have to note that the enemies are powerless. Oh, sorry, did I miss something? No? Ignore me. Okay, you prepare a table before me so I can trust that he's good because his provision sustains me even in hardship. And so um, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So the enemies are powerless to prevent God's people from actually enjoying his generous hospitality if if we don't let them. This always reminds me of another table that was prepared, and that's the Last Supper. And if you uh, track through the sequence of events in um, in the Gospels uh, and just sort of see when what was happening. Jesus was the host at this um, meal as well. And Judas, his enemy, was present for that. And so he ate with Judas. He ate with his enemy. Uh, and there's a record of Jesus actually dipping the bread into the wine and handing it to Judas. Like, what an intimate moment. There are very few people that I would dip something in and, and hand, um, hand to like that kind of intimacy in a meal. And Jesus, in the Gospels, it doesn't say he did that with all of them. Maybe he did, but it wasn't recorded. He did that with Judas, though. And at some point, um, Jesus tells him, you know, what you're going to do, just go do and do it quickly. And he was going to go betray him right after that meal. That was the the beginning of of the end, right? Uh, But he doesn't say that to Judas. He doesn't send him off until he does something else. And that is that Jesus washed the disciples' feet and Judas was there for that. Jesus washed Judas' feet. And when I noticed that, I was kind of annoyed because I was like, Jesus, stop giving us these impossible examples. Um, I don't want to wash the feet of somebody. I don't want to serve the person who feels like my enemy, right? Like, I may put up with eating with them, but to serve them in that way and... Then I was reminded that, you know what, I am Judas. Everyone there was too good for that task. Even the disciples, it was above their station to wash feet. But their, their leader, their rabbi, their teacher, he's washing their feet. And not only that, he doesn't send Judas off before he does that. He, he does that by serving Judas. And I, and I, and I hope we can come to the, a place where we can say, God, thank you for doing that. Because I, that would have been me. That would have been me. I would have been Judas. And you even serve me even when I'm engaged in awful things, right? There is something that Judas does miss. Um, There's in John chapter 14 until 17, there's the pastoral prayer. and, And Jesus Um, is teaching the disciples and prays for them and he calls himself the resurrection and the life and the true vine and he says abide in me and peace I leave with you and the helper, the Holy Spirit is coming after me and take heart, I've overcome the world and love one another and all all these beautiful things and Judas missed all that and I just wonder if anything would have been different if he was there for it and I wonder if any of us sit there and think I couldn't possibly enjoy this meal with them there And so do we allow others to rob us of the enjoyment of God's lavish generosity because we just can't get past the fact that they're present, okay? So I can trust that he's good because he sets the example by eating with even his enemies and serve them. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. So this speaks of abundance, of lavishness, anointing, fruitfulness. Uh, Roy spoke last, last week, wasn't that so good? Um, And he talked about the cups that were um, being filled up, that we could bring to be filled up. And so I just wonder, do we trust that if we have enough faith to bring the cup, that he'll actually fill it? Or are we afraid of what might be poured out when he does? I want to just remind us, the cup of wrath that God poured out when Jesus died on the cross, that was reserved for the lamb that was slain. This anointing has to do with Um, calling. And God will equip the called to overflowing. I meet with a spiritual director every week, and she always says this. She says, um, God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. So you just turning around to be restored is enough. He will do the rest, and he will um, fill the cup to overflow. So I can trust that he's good because in his grace and mercy, he calls and he equips me. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. So there's a certainty of goodness, of mercy, of steadfast love, um, the shepherd ahead of me guiding me, right? If I'm just with the shepherd, then I'm on the right path. And Charles Spurgeon says that goodness and love are kind of like twin angels at my back. And so I think of that song that says, um, it may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. And so even though I walk through the valley, I'm surrounded by the shepherd in front of me leading me and his goodness and love um, that speaks of running after and chasing and pursuing. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Remember, we are passing through the valley of the shadow of death, but I will dwell in the presence of the Lord forever, meaning to abide and to remain and to rest. I wanna echo from Psalm 27 where it says, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Isn't that what it's really just all about? And Jesus says again from Matthew 28, surely I'm with you always even to the end of the age. And so, I can trust that he's good because he invites me to dwell with him forever. If you're still uh, holding your Bible, I want to go to Revelation 21. Revelation 21 is the second to last chapter of the whole Bible. And we started in Genesis 2, which is the second chapter of the whole Bible. So from start to finish, we're going to see what it is that God wants to be with his people. Revelation 21, you can read this with me if you if you want 1 to 5. Revelation 21, verse 1 to 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, listen to this, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with people... He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And I just have to ask, are these words trustworthy and true for you? That from start to finish... It's all about him being with us. He didn't reveal himself until men and women were on the scene. And, he, and the final goal, the final deal, the whole um, thing ends with him dwelling with his people. I'll call the worship team up at this time. Here at Meadowbrook Church, we are helping people take their next steps with Jesus, upward, inward, and outward. Um, I want to close in prayer and invite you to um, do a little bit of a reflective prayer with me Um, it's something that I tell my kids when they're wondering why I'm just sitting there with my eyes closed and I say that I'm not saying a lot of words to God these days Um, and it's because I I find that what God wants to say to me is just so much more important than what I have to say to him and so I, I just want to listen so as you consider what your next steps might look like these are just some questions that you can be asking yourself. You can close your eyes if that's easier for you. I will read them out. If you want to be reading them, that's fine. Do I know God as Lord? So not as one of many gods, but Yahweh, the Lord, closer than I next breath. Do I know God as Lord? Consider, is is this maybe a moment of restoration for your soul? Maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time. There's no expiry date on that. Do I know God as Lord? Do I believe that he's good? Even as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, see the serpent's ultimate strategy was to question God's goodness. Did God really say, is he really good? So do I believe that he is good? And finally, do I see his witness as the epitome, the utmost, the ultimate, the most important part of his goodness, just being with him, not just enjoying the gifts that he gives me, but his presence. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you want to be with us. What a gift. Almighty God wanting to be with his people. May this be a thin place where heaven and earth meet. And so as we leave today, help us to consider and to keep considering. Do we see you as good? Do I know you as Lord? Do I recognize your goodness as the best thing for me? Amen.